open to listening. So, Lord, I ask for your help. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So, if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Jude. If you don't have your Bibles, uh, there should be some in the pew in front of you. And I would uh, greatly uh, recommend you to turn there. You know, these aren't my words. I'm not just giving you my opinion, but we're going to be looking at God's word, which is what has the authority. So the book of Jude, if you don't know where that is, uh, just turn all the way to the back, Revelation, right before that, second to last book in the Bible. Real tiny. We're going to be preaching almost all of that this morning. So we'll be looking at the book of Jude. And as we come ready to hear what God has to say, uh, I want us to think about our world for just a few minutes. Uh, There's a lot of uncertainty that goes on in our world, Uh, whether we're talking about the weather, you know, A lot of times we can't even predict when it rains, much less hurricanes and things like that, storms. It's unpredictable. We're uncertain what's going to happen. The stock market, if anyone follows the stock market and invests, that can be very worrisome. You know, you see stuff rising, you put all your money in, and you lose all your money. Uh, Scary feeling. Elections. We get worried when elections come around. Got to turn my mic on. Uh, You know, we're scared and we're worried that who we want to win the election might not get selected. And then we're worried that the results might not have been fair. We're uncertain if the system can even be trusted. Uh, We're unsure about our health. We're unsure of what tomorrow is going to bring. We're unsure of what the doctor is going to diagnose. We don't know if the medicine is going to work. We don't know if the surgery is actually going to help. Point is, there's so much we are unsure about in the world. And sadly, that uncertainty and that sense of not knowing the truth has came into the Bible, has come in to Christianity. And there are a lot of people who are unsure if we can really trust the Bible, if all the Bible is true. Uh, There was a poll taken in 2022, last year, that found that 20% of Americans believe the Bible is the Word of God. 29% of Americans believe the Bible is myth, stories, fables, collection of uh, tales, and then... The other percent, the other 49% believe that some of it might be true, and then some of it's probably false. What we can or can't know, we don't know. Uh, The shocking part of that is just about 15 years ago, the number was 30% that believed the Bible was the Word of God. We can go back further, and we can see that uh, less and less people over the years, uh, or more and more people are beginning to doubt God's Word. They're becoming uncertain of things that have always been accepted as true. There are many people who grew up in church, many people my age that sat in a church pew their whole childhood, teen years, who now doubt God's word. Uh, and I would say a big reason for that is the false teachers and the false teaching that's going on in our world. People are falling for the lies of the world. People are being distracted from the truth. They're being led astray. And we see that in our world. You know, we could, I could stand up here and I could talk about false teachers and I could list names. Uh, But Jude had the same problem happening in the early church. There were false teachers, and uh, Jude goes to those people's character. He talks about, let's look at their lifestyle, how they live, uh, what they believe, and that's how we're going to know who the false teachers are. And this was a major problem, because these false teachers aren't just in the world, but they're in the church. They're confusing Christians. They're leading people astray. They're leading people down these paths of destructions. And I think a lot of times when we hear the word false teaching, certain groups of people come to our mind. Groups we've heard of before, you know, think of like 
Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, atheists. Like, yeah, those people, you know, those are false teachers. They believe false teaching. But false teaching is simply any teaching that's false. Anything that adds or takes away from God's word. And an example of that we see today, uh, common false teaching that is becoming more and more popular at a really high rate is the Bible's stance on homosexuality. A Pew Research poll found that 35% of people today claiming to be evangelicals, people that claim to go to church on a regular basis, claim to read their Bible, uh, 35% of those people uh, believe the Bible is okay with gay marriage. That number was 14% 10 years ago. It's rose 20% just in, the, just in the last 10 years. And so the question is, have Christians been misreading the Bible for the past 2,000 years? Have we misunderstood and are we finally realizing what the Bible actually has said? Or has false teaching come into the church and slowly over time been making people doubt God's word? Jude is going to bring this up. And so if you're in your Bible this morning, let's look at Jude. Uh, we'll begin in uh, Jude verse 1. There's only one chapter. Uh, so, as I'm preaching this morning, we're going to see three imperatives from the text. We're going to see that we must, as Christians, we must stand for the truth, we must stand against false teaching, and then we can only do those two things if we stand on Christ. Christ has to be the foundation. Christ is the one who keeps us from falling. That's what we sang about all this morning. Uh, the faithfulness and the foundation has to be on Christ. So let's look at verse 1. So in verse 1, we're going to see who must stand for the truth. Uh, Jude identifies himself and who he's writing to. So this is a letter, an epistle. Jude is writing to a group of Christians, and we'll see that in verse 1. Jude 1 reads, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. So Jude begins his letter as you know anyone would that's writing a message, writing a letter. He identifies himself. He says he's a servant or a slave of Jesus Christ. He's a born-again Christian. He has given his life to God. And then he tells us one other thing about himself. He's the brother of James. Uh, And that's significant in the sense that if we know who James is, James is the half-brother of Jesus, which would mean Jude is the half-brother of Jesus. So I just thought that was kind of a cool detail. Uh, We have no record that Jude followed Christ when Jesus was on his earth. A lot of Jesus' family rejected Jesus. They didn't want anything to do with Jesus while he lived on earth. But at some point, maybe after the resurrection, he believed that Jesus was the Messiah and he trusted in him him for salvation. And his physical relationship had nothing to do with uh, his belief, with what he was putting his trust in. So I think that's a good thing for us to note, that just because we were born in a certain country, just because we grew up going to a certain church, that does nothing for our salvation. It's about our relationship with God, submitting to him uh, as uh, a servant, as a slave to Christ. So that's who Jude is. And he says he's writing to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and the called. So Jude is writing to them who have been sanctified, to those who have truly believed in Jesus. Those have been purchased by the blood of Jesus on the cross. Those that have trusted completely in his salvation And they are being preserved and sanctified. They're made holy in God's eyes. And what that means is they are living their life out to become more holy like like Jesus. It doesn't mean they're perfect, but they're fighting sin. They're struggling against sin. That's the mark of a true Christian. Are you fighting against sin? Uh, We're going to see later on, Jude uh, gives us some examples, but 
to, to claim to be a Christian and then have no problem with sinning, it doesn't make sense. It's perverting the grace of God into a license to sin. So Judah's writing to these Christians. They're sanctified by God and they're preserved. Another word we can read that they are kept in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one that keeps us when we're saved. He is the one that has us in his hands and nothing can take us away. Nothing can separate us from his love. And so in verse 2, uh, Jude gives the realities, uh, three realities, he prays them that these Christians would experience. He says, mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. That's the reality of us as a Christian. God has given us those things. And we can see all three of those magnified in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see the mercy of God displayed, sparing us, those that had sinned, those who have gone against God's will over and over again. Yet, Jesus took the punishment. Jesus died in our place. Jesus bore the wrath that we deserved. God is so merciful to us. We didn't deserve that. The moment we sin, we deserve uh, to face God's wrath instantly because God is that holy. Uh, But God spares us, but he spares not his own son. So we see the mercy of God. And then just thinking about how Jesus on the cross pays for our sin. Whenever sin entered into this world, whenever we were born, whenever we committed sin, our relationship with God was ruined. We were not friends of God. We were not buddies with God. We were not just, you know, God still loves us, but, you know, he just, you know, we're like kind of the hard-headed child. God hates sin. Uh, The Bible portrays sinners that aren't in Christ as though the enemies of God. God hates sin. And whenever we trust in Christ, we are welcomed into God's family. That peace in the relationship is restored in Christ. And then we're able to live out our life knowing that we're not going to face the wrath of God because Jesus has died in our place. Jesus faced that for us. And then, you know, as we think about what Jesus did for us on the cross, we see the love of God displayed in sending his only son to die for those who wanted nothing to do with him. You know, he loved us so much that he gave us his very best. He gave us Jesus. And that's truly amazing love. And then the fact that absolutely nothing can separate us from that love. Romans 8, verses 38 through 39, Paul gives that list of, can any of these things separate us from God? And the answer is no. If God's got us, God's redeemed us, he's going to hold on to us. He's not going to let us go. If God's love... If I had to earn God's love, if my good works could somehow earn God's favor and God's love, every single day would be a hopeless fight of uncertainty. I would never know, am I good enough? Did I do good enough today, God? Did I pray hard enough? Did I read my Bible enough? Did I go to church enough? Did I... It would just be, I wouldn't know. But because God's love for me is found in Christ, I can rest knowing that Christ, when he died and said, it is finished, it was finished. I am in God's love, and nothing can separate me from that love. But Jude says this, and then he still actively calls us to stand for the truth. So it's not time to just kick back and say, oh, well, I'm saved. I'm going to rest in God's grace and not do anything. Jude actively calls those who have received the faith, who has received salvation, to stand for the truth. So that's the who stands for the truth. Uh, But what is the truth? Let's look at uh, the first part of verse 3. Jude says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation. So the question is, what is the common salvation that Jude wanted to write about? Well, I'd say it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Well, what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? What is the gospel? Well, it's the good news that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But it's important we recognize that in order for the gospel to make sense, in order for the good news to really be good news, we have to understand the bad news. Uh, And it's really bad news. Uh, God is holy, perfectly holy. He cannot be in the presence of sin. He hates sin. And God creates this world. He creates mankind, and it's perfect as he created it. Man, then he creates man, and man chooses to disobey God. They eat of the tree, Adam and Eve, the fall of man. They disobey God, and ever since then, this world has been cursed. Sin has entered in this world. We've inherited sin all the way back to Adam, and then we ourselves naturally sin against God. And God says the wages of sin, the payment of sin, what our sin deserves is death, is separation from God. And so that's the really bad news. You know, and that's every single person in here. Uh, Paul says in Romans 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. Uh, our, righteousness, our righteousness is as filthy rags in God's sight. That means on our best days, when we've done our best, we feel like, man, we read an extra chapter of the Bible. We really, you know, we went all in today. It's like filthy rags in God's sight. It's disgusting that we think we can earn God's favor through our works. But Jesus comes, and he didn't sin. He never did a single thing wrong. He never committed a sin. He lived an absolutely perfect life. And then he was crucified. He died in an excruciating and awful way. And on that cross, God poured out the wrath that we all deserved. He poured it out on his only son, the only one who didn't deserve it. And if we trust in Christ to forgive us of our sins, the Bible says our punishment that we deserved is placed on Christ. Jesus bore it for us. And the idea of filthy rags... uh, Jesus, in his holiness and his righteousness, his robes are spotless white garments. And whenever God pours his wrath on him and we trust in Jesus, we receive Christ's righteous garments that are pure and spotless. He takes our filthy rags and he faces God's wrath uh, for our sin. And so that is the good news. We've all sinned, but Jesus came to die for those sins. But it's important we note that there has to be a response to that. That doesn't just happen automatically to everybody. It doesn't just happen because you're sitting in church on a Sunday. It doesn't just happen because your Christians were parents, because your grandpa was a preacher. You have to make the decision to submit to Christ. You have to make the decision to recognize that I am a sinner. The things I love are sinful, and repent of your sins, and come to Jesus and ask him to forgive you. And that's the only thing you're trusting in to be able to get to heaven. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We take no part in our salvation. It's all God's work. He gets the glory. He gets the praise. So has there been a time in your life when you realize you've sinned against God Almighty? Has there been a time where you went to Him and you repented of your sin and asked Him to forgive you? That's a question we all have to answer. And I can't answer it for you. Only you can answer it. And we're going to go on to later see that those who truly have trusted in God, it will be evident in their lives. And those who have not, it will be evident in their lives. It says, by their works, by their fruits, you shall know them. So that's what the truth is, the gospel. But now Jude is going to say, I wanted to write to you about the gospel. I wanted you to encourage you in the gospel. But something else has been brought to his attention, something else that's very urgent that he needs to discuss. So let's keep reading in verse 3. 
It says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto you, unto the saints. So why must we earnestly contend for, in verse 4, because there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. We must stand for the truth because there are people in the church, there are people claiming to be Christians who are turning the grace of God into sin. There are those teaching that the gospel does not really matter, that you can live however you want as long as you claim the name of Jesus. You're okay. You'll get to go to heaven one day. Uh, You won't face the the wrath of God. But as Christians... We see the truth. We see that if you trust in Christ, you have to, there has to be evidence. There has to be works. There has to be repentance. And so for us as Christians, we can't just be idle in standing for the truth. We must stand for it, and we must also stand against and call out false teaching when we see it. Uh, we must oppose it. And if you're in here today and you have been saved, it should be the natural flow of, I've received the gospel, I know the truth. I have to tell other people about this. Because if I don't tell them, they have no hope. That's the only hope any of us in here can have is to trust in Christ. So that should naturally outflow of our life if we're Christians. Because we care about our friends. We care about our family members. We care about those that are close to us. And the thought of any of them suffering in hell, that's a horrifying thought. God has given us this time here right now to tell other people about Christ. To tell them about the truth of the gospel. Uh, But you cannot stand for the truth unless you've been transformed by it, unless you have been saved, unless you've been born again. So we must stand for the truth. And then in the remaining of, or the majority of where we'll be this morning, verses 4 all the way to verse 16, uh, we're going to see that we must stand against false teaching. I forgot to mention in your bulletin there's a little outline uh, of my sermon. It's got the first point we just talked about. We must stand for the truth. The second point is going to be we must stand against false teaching. And it's important to note that through this section, you know, Jude doesn't just list out a bunch of names or groups. Uh, you know, that's a really popular thing today is, you know, who are the top ten false teachers in our world? You know, those types of videos get tons of views. Uh, but Jude focuses on their lifestyle. What are these people actually living? You know, they preach one thing, but what do their lives look like? Uh, So Jude says, by their lives, by how they live, that's how you're going to know what they really believe. And for these people, these false teachers, these people that follow false teaching, he condemns them. He says they don't have the spirit. They're not Christians. They claim to be Christians, but their lives reveal that they're not. So in these next verses, we're going to see eight characteristics of false teachers. And then we're also going to see the judgment that they face. So verse 5, or really at the end of verse 4, We see the first characteristic. Verse 4 says, They've turned the grace of our God into lasciviousness, and they deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So I'd say this first characteristic we're going to look at of false teachers, of false teaching, is lawlessness in verse 4. These men were ungodly, and they turned the grace of God into a license to sin. By their lives they deny Jesus as Lord, because they live as if sin is no concern. They live as if sin wasn't that big of a deal. Uh, specifically, Jude mentions lasciviousness, which is kind of a big word. You know, I don't think that's a word we use on a daily basis. Uh, 
That would include sins of the flesh, such as sexual immorality, drunkenness, so on. These people have turned God's free gift of salvation. They turned grace into a means to sin and basically uh, get out of hell free card. They say, oh, well, I trusted in Christ. You know, I'm good. 20 years ago, you know, I came before the church and I got baptized. I'm good. I don't need, the, I don't need to hear the gospel. I've already done that before. Uh, these people are living without concern for sin. And Paul addresses this point. He addresses this argument. Uh, jump over with me to Romans chapter 6. Uh, Paul has just got done talking about how we're saved by grace. It is all God's work. It is through faith alone and Christ alone. So Romans 6, verses 1 and 2 reads, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Is it okay? Can we sin now? We've been forgiven. Can't we just live as we want? Paul says, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And then verse 6 says, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. So to say you've been saved from sin and then to live as it's not a big deal shows a misunderstanding of the gospel. It shows that these false teachers, they do not really understand why Jesus had to come into the world. Because sin is a very big deal. Sin is really bad in God's eyes. It's so bad that the sinless Son of God had to die on the cross. That was the only way our sins could be paid for. That's how big of a deal your sin is, how big of a deal my sin is. We can't just accept God's gift of salvation and then treat sin the same as before. God says whenever we're saved, He makes us into a new creature. He gives us a new heart that's going to follow after, uh, that's going to desire to live after Him, that's going to desire to love Him. Uh, if you believe you have trust in God for salvation, but you are not convicted by sin, or have no desire to fight it, you may not have fully recognized or realized what your sin is and what God has done uh, on the cross for your sin. In our world today, a common way this is expressed is God is love. Yeah, that is a biblical concept. God is love. And they'll say, well, if God's loving, then why is he going to condemn me for doing what I love? You know, surely God is okay for just doing what I want to do, for loving whoever I want. Uh, those who follow this teaching, who believe that God will not judge sin, are going to face the wrath of God. Jesus came into the world to die for sin. Sin is a very big deal. Sin is very serious. Judah's calling us, we can't play around with sin. We can't live as if it's just no big deal. We can't live and just scoff at sin and laugh at it. Uh, we need to treat sin as God sees sin. A testable. It can't be in His sight. Uh, the Bible teaches that God is holy. He hates it, and those who sin will face the wrath of God. Uh, he is able to save us because we trust in His work, and the punishment we deserve is placed on Jesus, the only one who did not sin. So, for these false teachers to claim the gospel, for them to claim to have the grace of God, and then to live in sin, to enjoy it, to still like it, to joke around with it, to indulge in it, you know, maybe just on the weekends, maybe just every once in a while, that just shows an attitude of an unrepentant sinner. They've accepted Jesus just to get out of hell. They don't actually have faith. They, don't, they haven't actually trusted in Jesus for their forgiveness. So that's the first characteristic. The second one we're going to see in verse 5. And in verses 5 through 7, Jude is going to give us an Old Testament example. You know, a lot of people in the church knew the Old Testament very well of Jewish backgrounds. 
And he's going to use these extreme examples of sin. And he's going to say, these false teachers, they sin in these ways. Y'all don't think it's that big of a deal. It's as big of a deal as this, as Sodom and Gomorrah, as the people in Egypt, as the angels that rebelled against God. So let's read verse 5. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believe not. So here we have the Israelites. We can read about this in Exodus. God saves his people out of the land of Egypt. Uh, These are the people that saw the plagues of God. These are the people that walked on dry land through the Red Sea. These are the people that ate the manna that came down from heaven. These are people that saw God, yet he destroyed them because they believed not. The entire generation wandered the wilderness until they died. Because when they got to the promised land, even though they had seen God work, even though they had seen his power, when they got to the promised land and they saw these giants, these really big guys that were there, God had already told them the land would be theirs, but when they got there, they said, we can't beat these guys. We're no match for them. Let's run away. Let's go back to Egypt. It's better there. Shows they never trusted in God. They never really had faith that God would save them. They were trusting in themselves because their first response is, we're too weak. There was no mention of God. The whole generation died out in the wilderness. Just like the Israelites who seem to be close to God, there are people who sit in a church pew every single week. There's people who have grown up in the Bible Belt, who have heard the gospel week after week. There's people who live good lives. They're moral people. They raise their family uh, right. They teach them all the right things. They vote for Christian and conservative leaders. They check all the boxes. If you were to look at somebody and say, man, they've got to be a Christian. They're the real deal. They, they follow all the things. They check all the boxes. But in their heart, they're trusting in their works. In their heart, there's just a piece of them. It's like, yeah, I trusted in Jesus, but just in case that doesn't get me to heaven... You know, I'm still going to be a really good person. That's not saving faith in Jesus. The Bible calls us, Jesus calls us to put all of our trust, all of our faith in Him. That's the only way we're going to be saved is when we stand before God on Judgment Day, we say, God, I bring absolutely nothing to the table. I do not deserve to be in your presence. I deserve hell. It's only because of Jesus. That's the only reason I can be forgiven, because of what Jesus has done for me. We sing... uh, Simply, uh, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Jesus is our only hope. We must put all of our faith, all of our trust in that. Don't rely on your works. There should not be a shred, not an ounce of works in our salvation. It's all what Jesus has done. And so that's the second characteristic, unbelief. I don't know if I said that at the beginning, but it's the sin of unbelief. They didn't really believe that God was able to save them. They didn't really have saving faith. In God. The third characteristic we're going to look at is in verse 6. This is going to be the characteristic of pride. Verse 6 reads, And the angel which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. These are the angels that rebelled against God because they wanted to be in control, because they did not want to submit to the Creator. We hear this today. We see it in our world. I want to be in control of my life. I want to make my own choices. I want to be with whoever I want to be. I want to do whatever I want to do. If I want to be a female, I can do that. If I I want my own pronouns, I can do that. It's just a sense of, it's all about me. I can make my own choices. 
And then we could even go the other way with that too. I'm glad I'm not like those people. I'm glad I don't struggle with those sins. I'm glad, you know, I, I haven't fallen. I'm glad I'm above falling to false teaching. I'm glad that I'm the exception. It's all pride. The Bible calls us, for those of us who are Christians, who have pride that we wouldn't fall to sin, 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, Let him that standeth take heed, lest he fall. We must all be on guard against the sin of pride. Many writers have said it's the sin of pride that lurks in every man's heart. Deep at the bottom, there's a sense of, I want to justify myself. You know, I want to show people that I really, you know, I am a good person, that I can earn God's favor. But salvation, relying on God, is putting all of our faith, all of our trust in Him. There should not be a shred of pride in our hearts. And the Bible calls us to be humble. It calls us to be, uh, to have humility. And I wanted to turn over to Philippians uh, real quick to see our example of how humble we're just we're supposed to be. So Philippians chapter 2. Here we have the epitome of humility in the person of Jesus. So Philippians chapter 2. Listen as I read along. This is, this is our call. This is how we are called to live our lives. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto the death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted his name, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and of things in heaven, and things on earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." We're supposed to be humble like Jesus was. We're called to that level of humility. And we just think about what Jesus did. The creator becoming flesh. Born in a stable. Didn't even have a proper place to be born. He was raised as a carpenter's son. He was mocked by his own creation. He was scoffed at. He had nowhere to lay his head. The creator. We're talking about the person who created the universe. We're talking about the holiest of holies, treated like dirt by his own creation. And he willingly chose to do that for us. He went all the way to the cross, died one of the most excruciating, most humiliating deaths on the cross, suffered. It was embarrassing, shameful. He did that for me and you. He became humble to die for our sins. We're called to be humble like that. We have no right to be prideful. We have no right to have pride in anything uh, because of what Jesus has done for us. So we need to have humility. In order to fight that pride in our hearts, we need to remember to be humble, to ask God to help us to be humble just like Jesus was. And our only boast, our only thing we should take pride in is the fact that Jesus is our God, that he saved us, that he is the one who is going to keep us and hold us fast. He gets all the credit. He gets all the glory, not us, not man. As we move on to the fourth characteristic, uh, back in Jude, verse 7 reads, this is going to be the characteristic of immorality. Verse 7 reads, Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth an example of suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So Jude, like I said, he mentions these examples that have really stood out to people. You know, I think everybody, just about everybody's heard of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, 
Jude mentions that one of the identifying sins of Sodom and Gomorrah is fornication. Uh, fornication is any form of sexual sin. The Bible teaches that sex is reserved for marriage, and God defines marriage as between a man and a woman. Any sexual behavior outside of that is fornication. It is sin in God's eyes. And then the phrase, going after sane flesh, is a reference to the homosexuality that was so rampant in those cities. The Bible is consistent that homosexuality is sin because it goes against God's purpose in creation. As the culture around us shifts, uh, more and more churches are going to accept homosexuality. More and more people that claim to be Christians are going to say, it's, it's not that big of a deal. You know, why are you so uh, adamant? Why are you standing against this so hard? But no matter how much culture has changed, no matter how much around us the world shifts, we cannot view Scripture through culture. God's Word is the same. God's Word stands. It's never changed. It's never going to change. It's never going to pass away. And we need to stand on God's Word. Because these false teachings, they're coming into the church. They're already in the church. And we never need to get to a place where we think, oh, well, I'm good. Everything I believe is right. You know, we need to stand on God's Word. We need to check ourselves. We need to make sure... We are believing what's actually here, not just what we've been told. You know, I can preach up here, I can say all these things, but you need to read your Bible yourself. You need to understand what God's Word is saying. Don't just take my word for it. See what God's Word is saying. Go from multiple sources. Uh, Take time to be in God's Word every single day. Uh, God's Word, as Christians, we must stand on God's Word, and we cannot affirm sin. Uh, Whether it's homosexuality or whether it's sex before marriage. This fornication is sin against God, and they, whoever's committing these sins needs to repent, needs to turn from God, needs to turn to God. And so what was the consequence? What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? They suffered the vengeance of eternal fire from God. Hell is a really scary thought. For the unsaved, it's scary because it's their destination. You know, as you live, if you live in sin... The fear of God, the wrath of God is terrifying. And as a sinner without Christ, hell is how you pay for your sins. That is your attempt to pay for your sins in the wrath of God for all eternity in a real place called hell. But for the believer, as someone who is trusted in Christ, they don't have to fear the wrath of God because they have the love of God. Nothing's going to separate that. Nothing's going to take that away. They don't have to worry that somehow uh, they might mess up and God's going to kick them out. God has got them. God's the one that holds holds them, holds us if we've trusted in Him. But as the believer, as I mentioned before, that's a scary thought, thinking that there's going to be people we love that if they don't repent of their sins, if they don't trust in Christ, they don't have, they don't have hope. Hell is their destination. You know, and that should motivate us. That should drive us passionately to want to share the gospel. Yeah. You know, I can't... The thought of people I love... You know, suffering in hell. You don't even want to think about that. It's terrible. You know, it just drives me like to pray for those people I love, for people that don't know Christ, for people that are so hard against the gospel that don't want to repent. We need to pursue them compassionately, not just to write them off and say, oh, those rotten sinners, you know, they're going to get what they deserve. Those are people created in the image of God. Those are people who are in the same place you were before you trusted in Christ. They need the gospel, they need to hear. Uh, the truth of what God has done for them. Uh, with Christ, there is hope. No matter what sin it is, Christ can forgive their sin. Christ can redeem them. Christ can make them into a new person. We can't just write them off as 
somebody that deserves God's wrath, and they're never going to change. God can change anyone. So we need to be sharing the gospel, especially with these people that are caught up in these sins. Uh, and so as we move on from verse 7, we go into verse 8. And really verses 8 through 10 kind of all go together. And the, the characteristic I noted here, to be the fifth characteristic, is blasphemy. And so in verse 8, he's going to kind of do a summary of all these three things we just uh, talked about and say the false teachers are like all those things, and he's going to mention a new one, blasphemy, and then give us an example. So verse 8 reads, Likewise also these filthy dreamers, they defile the flesh, they despise dominion, and they speak evil of dignities. So that word filthy dreamers right there, that's kind of unique. You know, you don't see that word in Scripture a lot. And I think Jude is making a point to say these people have created a false reality that God is okay with their sin, that God is okay with them doing these things. Or perhaps they say, well, God told me in a dream. God gave me in a vision that it's okay. Uh, you know, he's got me. He's going to save me even though I'm caught up in this sin, even though I'm not repenting of my sin. Uh, and that also we have to go back to Scripture. Experience and emotions never outweigh what Scripture says. Uh, so these people, they've made up this false reality uh, that God is okay with this, and they defile the flesh. They commit fornication. They despise dominion. They have pride. They want to be the rulers of their own hearts. And they speak evil of dignities. They blaspheme. Well, what is blasphemy? Blasphemy is to revile or belittle. And specifically here, we're talking about God. They speak evil or blaspheme God and the glorious ones, angels. Uh, So blasphemy is using God's name in vain. Uh, Using God's name as a filler in your sentences. Uh, We ought to have such a reverence for the name of God that... Whenever something goes wrong, it's not the first thing on our tongue just to throw out as a word. You know, God's name is holy. We're talking about God Almighty. We're talking about Jehovah. And then just to use his name, just say, you know, for example, you, you know, you say Jesus' name in vain. You just throw it out there, you know, stub your toe. What does that show you, you think about the name of Jesus? It's just another word that comes out of your mouth. We ought to honor God with our mouth. Not just throw his name around like it doesn't matter. And then there's also blaspheming God with the way we live our lives. Uh, If we live as if God does not exist, to live in sin, to think sin is okay, to live as if, you know, Jesus died for my sins, so what? I'm still going to live how I want. That's to blaspheme God. Belittles God's work on the cross. And then Jude gives us this example in verse 9. It says, Yet Michael the archangel... When contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. But these people speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally as brute beasts, in those things they corrupt themselves. So verse 9, you know, kind of a weird story. It's not actually found in the Bible. Uh, It's actually from a source outside the Bible. And we have no indication here that Jude considers it Scripture. But no doubt it would have been a common story that many of the Jews would have heard of, maybe believed, maybe it just would have been a legend. But the point he makes is clear, that even Michael the archangel was not quick to rebuke Satan. But he said, God is the one who's going to judge you. We have to be careful uh, from listening, for listening to people who their whole ministry is based about rebuking things, about calling things out, about calling God's judgment on things. Uh, I remember back when uh, COVID-19... Y'all remember when that was a big thing? Uh, we actually couldn't meet in here for a while. Kind of crazy time. 
But there were pastors and churches that were rebuking COVID-19. They were calling God's judgment on the demon of COVID-19. And it's just like, what are you doing? Who are you to call God's judgment down? You know, we, we ought to be careful uh, when we listen to people, when we hear people do those kind of things, that that's what their whole ministry is based on. Jesus is saying, watch out for that. Uh, and then there's a passage, we won't turn there, but Acts 19, verses 13 through 16. That's the story of a different group. And in the name of Jesus, they try to cast out a demon. And the demon responds to him. He says, I know who Paul is. I know who Jesus is, but who are you? And then they, the demon leaps on them, and they run out of the house screaming and naked and wounded. Uh, it just goes to show there's going to be lots of people doing things, claiming the name of God, but they do not actually have God. They are not actually Christians. They're just doing it for show, to gain attention, to gain followings. As Christians, we need to be on guard against this. We should call out sin, but it is God who ultimately rebukes. It is ultimately God who judges the sin. And we should not be taking God's name in vain, but praising Him by the way we speak. And our lives should be showing that we really do love Him, and we're pursuing a life that will honor and glorify Him, not bring shame to His name, not give people who are unsaved a reason to say, you know, you say you're a Christian, but you do the same things as me. Uh, we ought to live lives that are above reproach uh, to honor and glorify God. As we move into verse 11, uh, Jude is going to again give us three more examples from Old Testament. And I grouped all these together for our sixth characteristic. Uh, the sin, the characteristic of false teaching we see here is going to be greed. Uh, so verse 11 reads, Woe unto them, judgment is coming for these guys. For they have gone in the way of Cain, and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Kor. So we think about Cain. You know, we probably, we're familiar with the story, Abel and Cain. Cain kills Abel, his only brother. The first murder we have recorded in the Bible Cain wanted the praise for his offering. Cain was greedy for the praise. And whenever God did not accept his offering, whenever God did not accept Cain's best works, Cain's best that he could give him, Cain got angry, he was shocked, and then instead of repenting of his sin, he let his anger continue to brew and he went out and murdered his brother. Uh, The false teaching that this is, is if we try hard enough and you really give it your best shot, uh, God will probably forgive you. He's probably going to let you into heaven. He's going to show mercy. Uh, as long as you try your hardest, as long as you, you, know, you really give it your all, you can do it. You can, you know, you can make it. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we can't make it. We can't do it on our own. We can't even come close. We failed from the day we were born because we have sin in our hearts. And that false teaching is leading people to hell. Tell them, if you, as long as you try hard enough, you know, God, he'll show mercy. He'll forgive you. Uh, there will be many people who will be shocked when they stand before God and they hear his words. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to jump over to Matthew. I'm going to read these verses from Matthew 7. Uh, really, to me, these are some of the most chilling words of Scripture. Matthew 7, verse 21 says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? In thy name have we not cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. Have we not gone to church every Sunday? Have we not been baptized? Have we not evangelized? Did we not give X amount of our dollars every single week to God? Did we not show compassion? Did we not live better than our neighbors? Did we not be the best citizens we could be? And in God's response in verse 23, 
And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. There's going to be people legitimately shocked on Judgment Day that they won't be accepted into heaven. There's going to be people that stand before God in horror as he reads the verdict. I never knew you. Say, God, I knew you. I sought after you. No, you didn't. You're trusting in your works. You see it by all the things they list off. God, I was in church. Surely I was, I was born in the South. I was a good guy. I wasn't like you know, the other people. I never knew you. Depart from me. Shocking words. All, our only claim to heaven, as I mentioned earlier, is trust in God. He's the one who saves us, not our works. Our works have no part. We don't get the glory. We don't get the praise for our works. Cain wanted the praise. Cain wanted his best to be accepted. And when it wasn't, he was angry. Uh, God, he's the one we trust in. Our works cannot, uh, they cannot honor him. They cannot be glorifying to him. They cannot save us. And then the second example in this passage is the example of Balaam, uh, who ran greedily after the, or, and they ran greedily after the heir of Balaam for reward. So the story of Balaam may be a little less known. The story is in Numbers 22 through 24. Basically what happened is the, uh, the princes of Moab, bad group of people, they offered Balaam, this prophet, money to curse God. And so in the narrative we see, you know, they go to Balaam and say, Balaam, we need you to curse God. We need you to curse Israel because they're too strong. We need somebody to, a prophet to curse God. And Balaam says, there's no way I'm cursing God. There's no way I'm going to curse Israel. That's God's people. I'm not going to do that. So, okay. But then they come back. King of Moab, Balak, comes back. He sends even more princes. This time he brings a huge pile of money. And what does Balaam do? He says, well, I'm not going to curse God, but I'll go with you. You know, he saw the money and the thought started coming into his mind. The greed started taking him over. Uh, He started wanting, he started desiring more and more. And for the sake of money, he cursed God. So then the question is, do you have a price? Is there something that will buy you out? Is there something that's going to take you away from God? Is there something you would rather have than God? Is there something you love more than God? Would you sell out for money or for status or for comfort? It's probably easy, you know, as we read these things, it's easy to listen. I would never sell out for God. I trust in Him. I would never, you know, money and stuff, I, I would never give up God for those things. But how often do we stress about money? How often do we worry about our financial situation? How often do we forget that God has promised us all good things? How often do we forget the riches and the promises we have in Christ, that He is sufficient to meet all of our needs? By the way we live our lives, it show what we put our trust in. We ought to trust in Christ. He's going to take care of us. He's already promised. He's already told us what's going to happen to us in the end. We're going to be saved. We're going to be in heaven forever with our Savior. Joy unspeakable for all eternity. We have no reason to worry. We have no reason to doubt. But we must run back to God whenever life throws those worries at us, throws those fears at at us. He's never going to fail us. He's never going to fail you. And He's never going to go back on His word. And so the third example in this verse is uh, the those that perish in the gainsaying of Korah. And so this is a reference to Numbers chapter 16. Uh, a guy named Korah rebelled against Moses and Aaron. Uh, he got a group of people that followed, and they didn't like what Moses was doing. They desired the power and authority that God had given to Moses and Aaron. They were greedy for the power, for the status. They desired what God had not given them, and God caused the earth to open up, and they all, they all died. 
Korah and his 250 followers, they were immediately swallowed up. Uh, point being is God hates greed. And we live in a society where the next best thing is what we have to have. You know, if I could just have a little bit more, I'd be good. Well, when you get a little bit more, that desire to have a little bit more is still there. Uh, a guy at work told me, uh, he was telling me a story about a preacher, and he said, I don't want all the land in the world. I just want the land that's next to mine. And so every time, you know, he got the land, he still wanted the land next to it. That desire for more and more, uh, it can never be satisfied. Only Christ can meet all of our needs. Only Christ can fulfill that desire of being full. He can fulfill our purposes. Stuff and status and power, it's not going to do it. The false teachers are greedy for the glory, they're greedy for money, and they're greedy for position. You know, as we think about false teachers, uh, we see a lot of superstar pastors. You know, these guys that stand up and, you know, there's nothing wrong with wearing nice clothes, but they'll be, you know, they'll be wearing things that are way nicer than this. You know, these are nice clothes. But they'll be wearing, you know, you can just look them up. Uh, They'll be wearing all these things. They have these huge houses, tons and tons of money. And it's just their churches, they're all about, you know, we got to get more people. We've got the biggest church. And... None of those things are wrong, and just because someone's popular and makes lots of money, does that mean they're false teachers? But oftentimes, if we look at the messages that they're teaching, we look at what their church, church is putting out, where their priorities are, we'll see that they are not accurately teaching God's Word. They might be teaching a softer gospel that falls on ears that are more eager to listen. They don't preach the hard messages of God's Word, the convicting messages. Uh, they are not living as those who represent Christ, but they look just like the world. Uh, in verses 7, uh, or our, our seventh characteristic is going to be hypocrisy. And in verses 12 to 13, I'm just going to read through all these. Jude just gives a ton of uh, comparisons to these people. He says in verse 12, There are spots in your feasts of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear, clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their shame, wandering stars, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Jude's point is, they look like one thing. They look like they promise one thing, but they don't deliver. They look like Christians, but they're not. They look like saints, but they have no love. They look like clouds, but they have no rain. They look like trees, but they have no fruit. That's pointless. That's worthless. Uh, they're like raging waves foaming their own shame. Wandering stars. They're unstable. They don't have their direction. They don't have their purpose. They're hypocrites. They claim to be Christians, yet their lives show they are not. You can fool everyone in this room. You can fool everybody. You can even fool yourself into thinking you're a Christian. But one day you're going to stand before God. It's going to be just you before God. What's going to be the verdict? Are you going to offer what you've done for him? Like we read in Matthew, are you going to say, God, I, you know, I gave it my best. I really tried. It's not going to be good enough. Only through grace, only through what Christ has done can we be forgiven. And we ought to live as if we've been forgiven. The gospel has changed our hearts. We must live like it. The Bible teaches that a new creature is going to have fruit. A new person in Christ is going to have faith. They're going to have love. They're going to want to serve after Christ. You're still going to sin after you get saved. We don't have a promise of perfection, but we're going to hate that we sin. We still love it, but we hate that we love it. And when we do sin, we confess it. We run it to God. And as we live our life, we grow in holiness. We fight sin every single day. We take measures to prevent the temptations from coming to us. We hold ourselves accountable. We ask other people to hold us accountable.
because we want to honor God with our lives. The final characteristic in verses 14 through 16 is going to be ungodliness. Verse 14 reads, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's person and admiration because of advantage. These people are ungodly. We see that word mentioned four times in 15. They live ungodly and they talk ungodly. There's no way you could tell by how they live and talk that they're a Christian. It's only they claim to be Christians. Uh, These are murmurers. They scoff at sin. They downplay uh, that God has called us to be holy. Say, you know, that's just for the, you know, that's for the crazy Christians. That's for those who are really, you know, trying to be holy and religious. They're the ones that, but God has called all of us as his children to be holy. They complain about God's laws. They complain about uh, that we cannot engage in sin. They walk after their own lust. They do what they want. And their mouth speaks great swelling words. And they boast in their pride. Uh, isn't it annoying? You know, I don't think any of us in here ever like to listen to somebody boast about how good they are at anything. You know, I don't know if y'all have ever had that happen. You know, you're sitting there talking to somebody and they start telling you how amazing they are. Maybe it's at their job or, in this case, maybe how good of a Christian they are. You know, they say, man, I am, you know, I am really on fire for God. I go to Sunday school. I go to Sunday morning. I even go back on Sunday night. That's how much I love God. And I go to Wednesday night. And I go to fellowship group. And I do a Bible study. And they start listing all these things. And they're boasting about all these things they do for God. You know, I give $100 every week. I give $200, you know. And they're just boasting about what they do for God. And the same thing is true, you know, if somebody were to come, you know, to the shipyard where we work, and they start telling you about all the stuff they can do, all the different ways and how they're the best person, best welder, best fitter. It comes to the point you say, okay, I get it. You're the best, but you got to show it. You know, you got to actually live that out. you got to actually prove what you're saying. These guys were all taught. They spoke great swelling words, and then they flattered. They said good things about other people to gain advantage. Uh, don't fall for the false teaching that God is okay with sin. He hates it. Uh, And he will judge the ungodly. All the ungodly will stand before him, and they will hear the verdict of guilty. Depart from me. And so those are all the characteristics that Jude walks through in those verses. And as we move on to our final point, I'm going to skip verses 17 through 23. Uh, I'm actually going to come back, and that's what I'm going to be preaching on tonight. So if you don't come back tonight, I'm going to assume you don't like me, and I'm going to be offended. No, I'm just kidding. I But I hope you would come back because verses 17 through 23 are very encouraging and they tell us how do we actually live as Christians? How do we actually approach those who are engaging in false teaching? What's our response to false teachers? But as we look, we're just going to conclude by looking at verse 24. It's going to be our final verse. And our third point is to do all this, to be able to live lives that are holy, to not be marked by any of these sins, to be able to live holy lives. We must stand upon Jesus. Verse 24 reads, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. There's two reasons we must stand upon Jesus. Because Jesus protects us and because Jesus presents us faultless. We can't protect ourselves. We're prone to sin. We love to sin. We need Jesus to hold us. We need Jesus to keep us. When he saves us, he makes us into a new creature and we're part of his family. 
We're in his hands. We're one of his sheep. And there's nothing that can separate us from his love. There is nothing and no one who is strong enough to pull us out of the Almighty's hands. We can trust the promise of Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he that hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ. If you're in here and you're truly saved, God's not going to let you go. He has promised that you're his. He's bought you with a price. He's not going to let that go to waste. That's what we sang this morning about that blessed assurance that Jesus is mine. He will hold me fast. When my fear, my faith will fail. When life throws everything at me. When I really begin to doubt. When I'm really struggling. When I'm really in a dark place. God's got me. I can trust in Him. And then finally, Jesus presents us faultless. We are justified in Christ. If, we are belie- if we're believers in here, we've received His righteousness. And He has, born, he has worn our fir- filthy rags to Calvary. We're able to stand spotless before the throne of God. Because Jesus has died in our place. Christ has died, and he presents us before God with joy. We still struggle with sin. We still fight. We still give in. It's a battle every single day to fight against sin. But we're always moving forward. Like I said before, when we give in to sin, we hate it. We feel the guilt. It's like, man, why am I still struggling with sin? Uh, We run to God, we confess it, and he forgives us. And he promises us one day we will have total victory over sin. One day we'll be in him with heaven, and there's not going to be any more sin. There's not going to be any more sorrow. There's not going to be any more tears. There's not going to be any more pain. There's only going to be us and God for all eternity at peace. We get to be with our Savior. We get to see Jesus face to face. One look at his dear face, all sorrows will erase. So bravely run the race to live for Christ. That's our call as Christians, to stand for the truth, to stand against false teaching. And we can only do that if we stand upon Christ. As I talked about earlier, there's so much uncertainty in the world. There's so much we're unsure about. But one thing we can be absolutely sure about all the time, forever, is God's word never changes. God's promises will never fail. And he will never let us go if you put your trust in him. Would you bow with me as I close in a word of prayer? Father, we bow before you this morning. Just in awe of you, God, that you have given us your Son and that in Jesus...